Due to health concerns concerning COVID-19, Evidence-Based Radio has been pre-recorded outside of the studio. Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. You can also find me on Facebook, though I don't really post there anymore, to be perfectly honest. But uh, someday I will be back on Twitter, which is at EBR underscore VFR. I do occasionally uh, glance at Twitter these days, but it's still really hard to deal with. So um, someday I will go back to social media, I promise. Um, (laughs) So, okay. We have made it through another week. I, for one, am glad to see the end of this week. It's been a bit of a stress fest for me uh, in terms of the day job, but it's now, quote unquote, the weekend. So we are going to start it off as we normally do with evidence-based radio, of course. But first, uh, regular listeners will know that even though this is a show primarily about science and skepticism, I am not afraid to use it to also talk about politics and feminism and things that I think are important and that need to be talked about. So if you'll forgive me for a few moments, I have something that I think is really important to say, which is no justice, no peace. I want to give a shout out to the community members and those throughout the city out this week and probably out there right now still keeping vigil around what's left of the third precinct in Minneapolis and in other parts of the city keeping vigil for the life and death of George Floyd. I cannot believe that another community is having to mourn an unarmed black man killed by the police. And some people will be quick to condemn the rioting, especially the looting. But I think personally that we have gotten to a point now where the time for peaceful protests is kind of over. People have tried and tried and tried over and over again, and we just haven't gotten anywhere. And I know that there's this lovely idea of the 60s and the civil rights era about how we got there because only through MLK and nonviolent resistance and things like that, but that's just not true. Um we tend to forget that there were riots, that cities, inner cities did burn and were looted. And it was because people were angry and fed up. And it seems that the people in charge haven't really learned any lessons. And so I think that the time for peaceful protests, there's still room for those, of course. And, you know, there were riots and peaceful protests going on in the same cities in different places during the during the 60s as well and into the 70s even and so 
I think that it's great for people to protest um, peacefully. I mean, I would prefer to do that, but I'm not going to condemn those who feel that that has not been enough in this case, um, because I think that they are potentially very right. For instance, because I have watched live video over the last few days, and I have seen cops shooting people at point-blank range with supposed less lethal quote-unquote tracer bullets, but that are doing very real damage. Um, I saw one young woman whose knee had just been broken open by one of those supposed less lethal. They're not non-lethal. There's a reason they call them less lethal. Um, I've seen them just doing it at point blank, blank range. I've seen cops spray people with tear gas and with uh, mace who were holding up their hands and were clearly no damn danger to the police who were simply chanting at them a little too close for their comfort as far as they were concerned, despite the fact that they clearly had their hands in the air. And I also, I have to admit, have watched the live destruction of the 3rd Precinct police station with little or no remorse. It turns out, and um, I didn't double check this, but I think that the source I got this from is credible, that there were actually schools that were closed due to lack of funds because those funds were diverted to building this new precinct building instead of funding schools. They thought it was more important to have police presence than schools. And so that to me is just incredibly infuriating. The full militarization of police officers is what has led to this as far as I'm concerned. They are given all of this supposed military grade weaponry and especially power because of course there was no weaponry involved in this death. It's just this sense that they have, that they have power, but they don't have any of the training or discipline that's needed to be trusted with either that power or the weapons that they're using. And one of the big things is, is that they are trained to protect people over property. And they are also trained that they are not required to stop a crime in progress. And so a lot of people forget about that, that they are not required to intervene if they are seeing a crime in process. They can wait until the violence is over. Um, and so that's a lot of what's happening right now. And so I do also want to be very clear and reiterate, uh, just in case you don't know the real story, which is that George Floyd died because he passed perhaps even unknowingly, since we will never truly know, a counterfeit $20 bill. He lost his life because of a counterfeit $20 bill. And I do want to um, say that I have heard interviews with the shopkeeper uh, who called in the um, counterfeit bill. And I do think that he is sincerely appalled by what happened. And so I don't think that, um, you know, I think that it is squarely on the shoulders of the cops who, while being fired, that is not enough. They need to be prosecuted for murder. 
and I just don't know how we're going to get past this unless that happens and unless that happens more. Um, I am very well versed in the abuses of qualified immunity, uh, which is this doctrine that basically cops get a standard pass unless you can show egregious misuse of that power and courts are very, very, very reluctant to ever say that they've overstepped their bounds. And so it's very frustrating. Um, and of course, one of the things that we don't think about a lot is that modern policing isn't something that we've had for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The police officers that we have today and the systems we have today are based on older systems such as slave patrols and early police forces in cities like Boston and New York who were primarily tasked with controlling the underclasses and keeping the city in a order that the upper classes wished it to be. And so I think that it's really important to remember that this is America. So, of course, the system is steeped in racism. And I think that it's really important to talk about this. I think everyone should talk about it. I don't I don't care if you have a music show. I don't care if you are consider yourself apolitical. I don't care if you don't talk to anyone, you should still think about it. Um, I think it's so important. And so I fear that, you know, that dark history runs right up through the present day. So again, I say no justice, no peace. And right now there is no justice in Minneapolis. Okay. So that's my soapbox. Uh, let us move on now to our regularly scheduled programming. Now, regular listeners will know that I am generally skeptical of anything that falls under the rubric of quote-unquote wellness. So, uh, as with much of our modern capitalist world, wellness has become big business. And a business needs continual input, which means that they can't actually make people well because they no longer need the product. It's, the, it's my main issue with diet programs, for instance. I did one of the major ones for a few years, much to my body's detriment, and I found after a while that they were constantly changing, or as they'd call it, updating the plan, which actually meant you suddenly needed a whole new set of materials in order to properly follow the new plan. Now, one of the things you may not realize is that wellness programs, quote unquote, were actually part of the 2010 Affordable Care Act, which means that they are actually subsidized and have, of course, been touted as a way to reduce overall health care costs. And at this point, 84% of companies that provide health care also provide workplace wellness programs. I was personally unhappy this month to find out that my own employer was expanding our benefits to include 12 sessions of acupuncture. Ugh. Well, recently, the Illinois Workplace Wellness Study, a randomized controlled trial, found that after 24 months of use, a comprehensive workplace wellness program had no significant effects on any of the usually touted health outcomes such as weight, 
blood pressure, cholesterol, blood glucose, or medical diagnoses, or the use of health services such as doctors and hospitals. They used a program called iThrive, which was designed to mimic a typical workplace wellness program with three annual components, an on-site biometric screening and survey, an online health risk assessment, and a choice of wellness activities, which probably included things like yoga and things with a little more backing like meditation. We can talk about meditation at some point. There are benefits to meditation, but not as many as people make it out to be. Um, and so the study was conducted using 4,834 University of Illinois employees, 2,770 women, and so you don't have to do the math, 2,064 men, uh, because of course, sadly, these studies are also still mired in this sexual dichotomy framework uh, that we have inherited. And so the employees were randomly sorted into groups that were given two-year access to the program or to those who were called ineligible. Now, the researchers looked at a variety of indicators that should be affected if wellness programs work, such as health beliefs, self-reported health behaviors, clinician-collected health information, and claims-based medical diagnoses and medical use they found that there was no significant difference between the two groups when it, came to, when it came to actual health outcomes. The study looked at health outcomes at 12 and 24 month intervals. They found that there were only two changes that were affected by, or who were uh, larger in those who adopted the program. There was an increased number of people who reported that they had a primary care physician and they had an improved belief by the employees themselves about their own personal health. So they just felt better about themselves, but all of the actual medical outcomes didn't improve at all. So it seems rather unsurprisingly uh, to the skeptical minded one hopes that these programs are mainly for lining the pockets of the companies who make them and sell them to employers who may or may not even realize that the whole thing is junk science. Of course, I feel sometimes like I want to push back at this sort of uh, wellness program, for instance, at my workplace, but I know that I would be rebuffed, even though it's a place that definitely should know better because there's such this cachet around the idea of offering wellness programs. And so it's very frustrating, especially since we're all paying in the form of tax subsidies and increased insurance premiums for these supposed added value programs, which in the end add little to no value to anyone's health. Okay, it feels good to report on a bit of skepticism. It's been a rough haul lately, and I don't want to focus too much on negativity, even though we started off the program with a pretty heavy topic. Um, but every once in a while, it's really good to remember that even though things are not normal right now, and they are not in so many ways, one of the things that I was so concerned about watching live streams of the the protest is that they're not doing enough social distancing and enough of them weren't wearing masks. A lot of them were wearing masks, mostly because obviously, 
you know, there are things like tear gas and uh, mace being sprayed everywhere, but there were still a lot of young people out there without masks and gathered in very cl- close quarters. Um, and so that actually made me very upset um, because I don't want them to have to then deal with an outbreak of COVID-19 on top of what's already happening. Um, and so I think that that's really uh, unfortunate. But I think that despite all of the negativity that's going on, uh, we need to keep up with our uh looking at things from a critical perspective and to keep our wits about us. Uh, We can't let things like this uh, slip through the cracks just because we're distracted by things that are absolutely genuinely uh, bigger and um, potentially more important. But it's still important to remember that we need to to also speak out about things that are not evidence-based. We need to speak out about things that are especially not evidence-based that is separating people from their money. Um, And so that's why I think it's important to talk about studies like that. Okay, let's move on now and talk about something completely awesome. (laughs) Let's talk about a beloved foodstuff, maple syrup. Um, if you don't like maple syrup, I, d- I don't even know how you're human. Uh, just kidding, obviously. Um, and so a group of researchers at the University of Montreal in Quebec has developed an artificial quote-unquote tongue, which uses gold nanoparticles, which can weed out bad batches with off flavors earlier in the process, uh, which can lead to less wasted effort in producing batches that are just then rejected. Now it's similar to a lipness test. Uh, So it doesn't need a fancy device. It's a simple chemistry-based test, which uses a color change to indicate whether an off taste is present. This is according to a recent paper in the journal Analytical Methods. Especially here in Canada, we take maple syrup for granted, said co-author Jean-Francois Masson of the University of Montreal. But it is much more complicated than we had anticipated. It has some of the same complexities as fine wine and whiskey. And in Quebec, maple syrup is serious business, with around 70% of the world's supply originating from the area. Interestingly, real maple syrup is 99% sugar and water, or uh, glucose and water. Um, I think it's probably glucose, uh, with only 1% being responsible for that amazing flavor profile. Of course, there's more than one profile. There are actually around 60, such as caramelized, smoked, salty, or woody. Now, if you're local, you probably already know the process of how the syrup is made, but just in case, the syrup must be the reduced sap from maple trees, such as, or usually, sugar, red, or black varieties. The trees store starches in their roots and trunks before winter, and then before winter, it is converted into sugar. I should say, they store the starch in their roots and trunks during the winter, and then, I'm sorry, (laughs) I keep I keep uh, explaining this wrong. So the the trees store starch in their roots and trunks while they're growing during the growing season so that they'll have 
this for the winter and early spring when there's not as much nutrients out there. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and so at that point, they convert it into sugars that can be used for the tree to continue um, living. And so as the sap rises in late winter, early spring, the tree can be tapped with a spigot and the sap collected. It's then boiled down and filtered to create the amazing final product. Since 2014-15, the U.S. and Canada have had roughly the same grading standards. Grade A is sold to consumers. Grade B can only be sold in containers larger than five gallons, and anything less than it is considered substandard. Further classification is given for color. Golden, amber, dark amber, and robust dark amber, which is my preferred syrup. As far as I'm concerned, golden is for tourists and supermarkets. Uh, and so obviously you should support your local sugar shack uh, if you can. There are plenty of them to go around in the valley. I, for instance, have a gallon of local robust dark amber from last year that I've only gotten halfway through, I have to admit. Um, I like it on ice cream. <laughs> which I understand is incredibly decadent. <laughs> but getting back to the paper, color classifications are determined by measuring a syrup's internal light transmittance by passing a 560 nano nanometer wavelength light through a 10 millimeter sample. Now for golden, there must be a 75% or higher transmittance, while for very dark amber, there must be less than 25% transmittance. Now, unfortunately, climate change is affecting the ability to get clean batches of syrup, which is why they needed to develop this kind of test. Batches can develop an off flavor due to contamination, microorganisms, or fermentation byproducts, among other causes. Now, the most common is called a buddy off flavor. Late harvest can alter the chemistry of the sap, which can result in higher level of amino acid and small organic thiols, which can affect the flavor profile. So buddy in this, in this meaning is like that the trees have already started to bud a bit. And so it turns out that Masson is actually an expert in developing field deployable instruments. And so that's why he was approached by the Quebec maple syrup producers to develop a quick and easy test to weed out off-flavor batches on site. And so currently most grading and classifying is done by trained human taste testers. Oh, to have that job, though I don't have a good enough nose, with a limited amount of fluorescent spectroscopy uh, added into the mix. But this is only able to be done in four facilities in the entire world. And so Masson decided that a color metric test would be good for this usage. He developed the test using a plasmonic sensor, which could be configured for naked eye detection, which would, of course, then be suitable for the high throughput 96 plate, 96 well plates used at maple sugar shacks. So if you're doing big, um, if you're doing big batches, you have these 96 uh, batches or 96 spigots all filling up at the same time. 
And so plasmonic-based noses or tongues are in use for other types of distinction, such as to differentiate between normal and cancer cells and between different types of proteins. A 2019 paper actually reported on the use of plasmonic-based array to differentiate between different forms of Scottish whiskey. Now, the maple syrup array uses gold nanoparticles stirred into ultra-pure water to create a sort of reagent solution. It reacts specifically to those buddy flavor profiles. Several molecules associated with off flavors bind to gold surfaces. If there is sufficient quantities of the substance, they will cause the gold nanoparticles to clump together, which leads to a change in the resonance wavelength and thus to a visible change in color. It's similar to the pH or chlorine test that people do on a regular basis to make sure the pool is not too alkaline or too high in chlorine, said Messon. It will change color based on the flavor profile. So it's a simple naked eye test that tells you whether or not you've switched from, say, top premium grade maple syrup to one with a slightly different flavor profile. To use the reagent only requires a few drops of syrup. After about 10 seconds, the reagent should either remain red, indicating premium grade, or turn blue, meaning that it has a buddy flavor and should be considered processing grade. Now, the researchers tested 1,818 samples from the 2018 harvest season, which had already been officially graded. The method worked well and is good for rapid reading, though there is, of course, some still some subjective elements to judging color. It wouldn't work for those who are colorblind. And so Masson's group is now working to develop a spectral photometer to augment the plasmonic tongue and thus to create more accurate readings. Now, of course, it's still not as good as a human taster. It's mostly to weed out obvious buddy batches so that producers can tell whether or not to keep working on that batch or to uh, let it go. Maple syrup is the same as wine, said Masson. You wouldn't want wine to be classified based on some robot deciding if it's a premium quality or a low-grade quality because it may miss that mouthfeel that we find so enjoyable. Now, of course, I personally have my doubts about the depths of flavor claimed by some wines, uh, but they, but both definitely have complex flavors. And so I think that it is totally true that uh, we don't yet have sophisticated enough uh, machinery or um, devices that can truly get the same profile of flavor understanding than a human can. Much like everything, it's a lot easier when you've already developed it through millions of years of evolution than when you're trying to build it from scratch. <laughs> okay, so we are going to take a break now and do some PSAs and show promos. And then when we come back, we will talk about Elvis worms. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. 
For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Hey kids, let mom help with your science project. This new mom wants her kids' science project to thrive. Too bad she hasn't cracked a science book since 1985. A metathesis reaction? Compounds, mixtures, and elements. Even this baking soda volcano is too big of an experiment. Whoa. Now she's completely forgotten the periodic table. Now she's burning a hole through the kitchen table. Burning with science. But her kids' love for the mom is truly transparent. Proof you don't have to be perfect to be the perfect parent. Don't tell Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of siblings in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back. This is still evidence-based radio. And as advertised, we are going to talk about Elvis worms. So these are scaly deep sea worms and they are tiny. They are millimeters to centimeters long, uh, but they have iridescent sequin like scales. Hence why they're called Elvis worms. Uh, for a while, we thought there was just one kind of Elvis worm, said Greg Rouse, a marine biologist at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography of oceanography in La Jolla, California. But new analysis of the genetic makeup shows that there are actually four different species, according to the new paper in the journal Zookies. Rouse's team compared the DNA from different Elvis worms with each other and with other scale worms. It places the Elvis worm in the Panelopolino genus of scale worms. Uh, the name is Greek for hungry scale worm, apparently. And so that genus already includes two other species, one that lives off of the coast of Spain and another off of California. Now the four new species are all found in the Pacific, P. elvisi and P. gaufrindiae 
in the Monterey Canyon off California, P. orphanage in the Gulf of California near Mexico, and P. minioi near Costa Rica. Now the worms have nine pairs of scales with each species having its own color palette. P. alvisi is gold and pink iridescent, while P. orphanage has rainbow sparkled scales with a bluish cast. That's my personal favorite. Now, there's no reason the others are more like the uh, pink gold version. They're just slightly different um, hues of that pink gold combination. Now, there's no reason for the worms to have developed such pretty scales uh, since they live in the dark, deep ocean, uh, but it may be simply an effect of evolving thicker scales, which refract more light. Now, the worms need these thicker scales because despite their dainty appearance, they are quite the fighters. Suddenly, they started doing this amazing jitterbugging, wiggling and then fighting and biting each other, on their scales, Roos says. No one's ever seen any behavior like it, like this in scale worms. So that's pretty neat. Not only did they find out that there are more of them, but they found out a new behavior. There's not really much to say about this. I just really liked the idea of Elvis worms and they are actually really kind of cute. Um, and so, yeah, um, <laughs> It was just kind of one of those, this is neat, I should share it kind of stories. So let's move on from a rather exotic and odd animal to one that is frankly much more common. The garter snake is ubiquitous among much of North and Central America. I've seen them around uh, the area. I've seen them while walking on the Silvio Conti path, which is my favorite. And um, they're just very cool. They're just chill snakes. They don't have any, you know, they don't, I don't think I've ever heard of a garter snake biting anyone. Um, it probably does happen occasionally, but I've literally never heard of a story about it. And they're definitely not venomous. Uh, and so they're just our local garden variety snakes. Um, and I definitely have heard people call them garden snakes before instead of garter. Um, because they're just, you know, it makes sense that they would be garden snakes. And so they actually have a range from Canada all the way down to Costa Rica. And a new paper published in Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology suggests that they actually form social bonds. So they looked at 40 garter snakes, 30 wild caught, and 10 captive bred. They then placed the snakes in an enclosure with a limited number of places to hide. They found that the snakes formed groups and stuck with those groups even after being moved around. This reinforces previous research that reptiles can make friends and suggests that this knowledge could be used to help with re reptile relocation. Now, of course, when we say make friends, there is, there's a whole, uh, show to be done on just talking about anthropomorphizing. And so there are people who are very against it and there are people who are very for it. And most good research uh, is kind of in the middle ground. So we can't say that animals don't have the same kinds of traits that we do, but we also can't say that they are completely like us. So when we say friends, we don't 
it can have a more neutral meaning than it does when talking about um, animals with higher sapience. It just means that they tend to stick around a certain group of people or a group of animals. See, I'm doing it myself. Uh, A certain group of animals. Social behaviors of reptiles generally, and snakes in particular, are more complex and likely meaningful than we had thought, University of Florida ecologist Harvey Lillywhite, who actually wasn't involved in the research, but whose own research showed that cottonmouth snakes socialize and forage in pairs. And so behavioral ecologist Morgan Skinner, who actually conducted the research, um, they're from the Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada, actually placed 10 snakes at a time in a walled enclosure three feet square. The enclosure had four boxes for the snakes to hide in, but in order to find shelter, they obviously had to form groups because there were more snakes than boxes. (laughs) Each snake was given a colored dot on their head to identify them and allow researchers to track their movements. Photos of the enclosure were taken every five seconds for eight days to track the snake's movements. Twice a day, Skinner noted which individuals were in which group. All animals, even snakes, need to interact with others, Skinner tells Virginia Morrill at National Geographic. Like us, they seek out social contacts, and they're choosy about about whom they socialize with. And so the snakes would form groups up to eight individuals. Now, during his checks, Skinner would move the snakes into different places and then watch them return to their previous groups. Skinner also put the snakes into one of two categories, which is um, done in other, with other animals uh, when doing animal behavior. This is actually apparently something that a lot of animal behaviorists do. And so the two categories are either bold or shy. They mentioned uh, that there are that they categorize dolphins these ways, this way, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. So bold snakes spent more time exploring the enclosure while shy snakes were more reticent. But regardless of their personality, they moved together with their groups. Co-author Noam Miller, Skinner's advisor, notes that garter snakes also tend to group in the same way in the wild and suggests that cuddling snakes could conserve heat and moisture better than singular serpents and could also help if the snakes were attacked. The behavior might also help explain why reptiles will sometimes leave areas where they've been relocated to be safe. Moving groups together might lead to better outcomes and also treating the new areas to the species scent might also help them to stay in their new locations. Okay, let us now move on and talk about insects for a bit. And it, I trust me, it won't be bad. It won't be bad. We won't be talking about any terrible insects. Um, <laughs> so first, let us once consider the noble bee. Unfortunately, because of climate change, bees are starting to look for food earlier in the year, among the other problems that they're dealing with. Um, And of course, this is often when plants haven't even yet begun to bloom. So it turns out they found a way to speed up the process of making the plants bloom. Publishing in the journal Science, researchers note that bumblebees will bite the leaves of plants that haven't yet bloomed. This causes the plants to bloom to flower up to 
30 days before the average time. The researchers actually discovered this behavior by accident, which I would like to say is actually a fairly important part of the scientific method. Um, many things have been discovered by accident, and that is not a, a bug, that is a feature of science. <laughs> the, they had bees in the lab for an unrelated experiment and noticed that they had begun to munch off bits of the plants without a seeming reason, since, of course, they don't eat plant matter. They only eat the pollen. The researchers looked in the literature for an, ex for an explanation, but found little written about this. We found that others had also observed such behavior, but no one had explored what the bees were doing to the plants or reported an effect on flower production, Mark Mesher, a professor at the University ETH Zurich and study author said in a statement. In order to figure out why the bees were doing this, the researchers placed bumblebees into mesh cages full of unflowered tomato and mustard plants. They soon saw the bees using, were using their mandibles to pierce the leaves of the plants. The team also used a razor blade to mimic the action of the bees on other plants. They found that all of the plants bloomed earlier, but the bees munched, but the bee munched ones bloomed weeks before even the manually cut plants. For tomato plants, it was a full 30 days, while the mustard plants bloomed 14 days earlier. Consuelo de Moraes, a study co-author and professor at the university, notes that there may be a chemical in the bee's saliva, saliva that affects the plants. Or our manual imitation of the damage wasn't accurate enough, which is possible as well. <laughs> now, once the behavior was established in the lab, the researchers then moved out to look outdoor at outdoor bee, bumblebee colonies, both domesticated and wild. They saw the same actions taking place. One hopeful idea is that they have worked out a solution to adapt to the climate change, at least at the moment, that causes the flowers to bloom later. An encouraging interpretation of the new findings is that behavioral adaptations of flower visitors can provide pollination systems with more plasticity and resilience to cope with climate change than hitherto suspected, Lars Chitka, uh, another study co-author and professor at Queen Mary University of London, wrote in a letter in the issue of science which accompanied the new, science, new study. Now, of course, there's only so much that the bees can do themselves. Uh, so, uh, as always, we have to remember to press everyone with even a little bit of true power to work on reducing our impact on the climate. Okay, so let's move rather back in time to a millipede fossil from Scotland, which has been dubbed the world's oldest bug. Now, of course, this is a fossil, so it's not, hopefully it's not triggering any uh, bug issues. The millipede Campercaris obonensis, found on the Scottish island of Carrera, has been determined to be 425 million years old, according to research at the University of Texas at Austin. The findings suggest that bugs and plants developed at a more rapid play pace than previously believed, going from communities that hugged the lakes from which they had newly emerged to complex forest ecosystems 
in just 40 million years. It's a big jump from these tiny guys to very complex forest communities, but in the scheme of things, it didn't take that long, said Michael Brookfield, a research associate at UT Austin's Jackson School of Geoscience and an adjunct professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. It seems to be a rapid radiation of evolution from these mountain valleys down to the lowlands and then worldwide after that. The research was published in the journal Historical Biology by Brookfield, along with colleagues including Elizabeth Katlos, a professor in the Jackson School's Department of Geological Sciences, and Stephanie Suarez, a doctoral student at the University of Houston. Suarez actually improved the dating technique used to determine how old these fossils were when she was an undergrad at the Jackson School. So molecular clock dating, which uses DNA's mutation rate to sort of give us a guesstimate of how old things should be, had suggested that millipedes should be around 75 million years younger than the specimens and that land-dwelling stemmed plants should be should also be around 75 million years younger. Now just to be clear, when I say younger here, I mean closer to the present in origin, in origin. However, in other research, a land-dwelling stemmed plant was also found in Scotland and also dated to around 425 million years ago. Who is right, us or them, Catlos asked. We're setting up testable hypotheses, and this is where we are in the research right now. Now, researchers know that by 20 million years later, there are abundant deposits of bug fossils, and by 40 million years later, there is evidence that forests had basically fully developed, complete with spiders, insects, and tall trees. They were actually surprised that no research had been done on these millipede specimens before. Now, Suarez posits that it could be because of the difficulty in extracting zircons. Zircons are the microscopic mineral deposits from ashy rock sediment in which the fossil was preserved. They're basically the key to doing this kind of dating, but they are also very hard to extract. Suarez actually developed a technique for separating out the mineral, but this involves, for instance, hunting them with a pin glued to the tip of a pencil. <laughs> that kind of work trained me for the work that I do here in Houston, Suarez said. It's delicate work. That is one way of putting it. Um, it's, it is very good that we have people who enjoy that kind of thing, um, that are able to do that kind of work. What's interesting and kind of funny is that she first used the technique to strip another millipede specimen of its title of world's oldest by proving that it was around 14 million years younger than thought. And for, for this, I just think it's amazing that a soft-bodied animal from 425 million with an M years ago is accessible to us. And if you look at the fossil, it looks like a stone impression of a millipede. I think this is very cool, even if I wouldn't necessarily want to meet one of its modern-day descendants in the woods of today. Um, I will note that. <laughs> All right, so people often ask, 
what what really is the good of math, really? Unless you're an engineer or a scientist, and yes, I am making a distinction between those two, or employed in a few other occupations, most people, especially these days, use computers to do the math for them, which is absolutely fine. I do that myself, but math can pop up in some interesting places. An international team led by George Haller, professor of nonlinear dynamics, also at ETH Zurich, has looked at information from coastal flows and suggested that using math can help to make better decisions as to where rescuers should search for potential victims of ship, shipwrecks and plane wrecks over the ocean. Using data from ocean currents and dynamical systems theory, the team developed an algorithm which can better determine where a person or object floating in water will drift. The probability of finding someone alive after six hours after a rescue operation has begun drops dramatically. And many factors can contribute to this, including changing tides, changing weather, and variable coastal currents. We already have algorithms for the ocean itself, but coastal areas can be quite difficult and can lead to searchers being deployed to the wrong areas. Holler's team found that objects floating on the ocean surface in coastal waters congregate along special curves that they have called transient attracting profiles, or traps. (laughs) And so these traps are impossible to spot visually but they can be extrapolated from ocean surface current data using this new algorithm derived by the ETH group. And so this is pretty impressive and exciting. It could enable rescuers to spend less time searching areas that are unlikely to have any survivors. The curves are also less sensitive to uncertainties so they can be more confidently followed. The team tested the trap system in two separate ocean experiments near Martha's Vineyard in collaboration with researchers from MIT's Department of Mechanical Engineering, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, and the U.S. Coast Guard. Using data available to the Coast Guard, the team was able to identify traps in real time and were quickly able to find buoys and mannequins thrown into the water to test the theory. Of several competing approaches, tested in this project, this was the only algorithm that consistently worked in situ, said Haller, who notes that they next plan to test the system in other waters. Our hope is that this method will become a standard part of the toolkit of Coast Guards everywhere. Now, you might have also been thinking, like I did when I first read about this story, that this could also have potential when it comes to things like oil spills. And so uh, Sarah notes that this is definitely something in the works that they're thinking about that seriously. And also notes that our results are rapidly obtained, easy to interpret, and cheap to implement, which is important in these sorts of situations. And so I'm really looking forward to that being able to be deployed in future. Okay. So we are going to wrap up tonight with another fun story. Um, I want to make sure that we are not uh, spending too much time 
not um, <laughs> in the in the gray, uh, dismal parts of the world. And so this one is pretty fun. Uh, researcher Tyler Gray and colleagues at the University of Vermont in Burlington, so just not far from here, recently reported in PLOS One the results of their study on stretched words such as dude, hey, and no. Stretching a word, both in speech and writing, can change the meaning of a word. Many might immediately think of sarcasm employing this linguistic tool. Who hasn't said or had someone say to them, sure, in a sarcastic tone? But a yes might indicate excitement. I didn't really indicate excitement there, but uh, I think when written, it might be better. <laughs> uh, and so that is part of why they're able to do this work is because, of course, these kinds of stretched words aren't very common in uh, formal language, but they are much more common in informal writing, which is, of course, what we have an abundance of these days. So, because informal writing is so abundant on social media, this has given the researchers a window to be able to study these otherwise mostly spoken words. The team developed a new strategy for identifying stretched words in tweets and used it to randomly select and then analyze around 10% of all tweets generated between 2008 and December 2016. This is around 100 billion tweets. Ugh, mercy. <laughs> Knowing some of what's on Twitter, I'm, I hope that they didn't actually have to, I, I'm, I hope that, that they never used this machine for uh, an AI. <laughs> We've all seen the terrible, terrible things that happen when you give AIs uh, databases from the internet. <laughs> they found thousands of stretchable words. Now, one of my personal favorites to stretch is high in order to indicate excitement to see someone. I often use it with my boyfriend, much to his amusement. Um, the researchers identified two ways of measuring the characteristics of stretchable words, balance and stretch. So balance refers to which letters in the word are repeated. So something like hi, 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 or ha, 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 is balanced because it generally contains the same number of repeated H's and either A's or I's. Whereas a word like go, I cannot do it the way that uh, the Telemundo uh, announcer can, usually has more O's than any other letter. Stretch refers to how long a word tends to be stretched. Short words like ha or high have high stretch because people tend to repeat them several times, while regular words like infinity have low stretch, often with only one letter repeated. Not only are the findings interesting, but the authors were able to develop tools and, and methods for future use on the subject, such as investigating typos, either misspellings or mistypings. 
these tools could be applied to improve natural language processing, search engines, and spam filters. We were able to comprehensively collect and count stretched words like goal and ha 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 and map them across the two dimensions of overall stretchiness and balance of stretch while developing new tools that will also aid in their continued linguistic study and in other areas such as language processing, augmenting dictionaries, improving search engines, analyzing the construction of sequences, and more. So this is very cool. And um, it's interesting to see how far computational linguistics, for instance, has come since uh, my college days where I spent a semester diagramming sentences and trying to get computers to figure out what that ultimately meant. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I also just love the idea of studying something that is such an interesting and um, probably unthought of uh, aspect of language. And so there's a lot of um, people do a lot of research on kind of the changes in words themselves, the meanings of words and things like that. But talking about stretched words in this way, I thought was really interesting and compelling. All right. So that is all the time we have for this week. I hope that you have a lovely weekend and a good week um, or a lovely week as well. And I will be back next week. Um, I think I'm not positive, but I think that it might be a um, astronomy and physics based week next week. There are several Uh, stories that I wasn't able to get to because I didn't think they were quite as fun as the ones that I chose or uh, necessary to talk about as the ones I chose that were uh, based on astronomy, mostly because we talk about astronomy a lot and sometimes I just like to take a break, but I think it might be time for a new one. So do come back for that next week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.